This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Canada is far, far behind, I think, uh, many jurisdictions. Uh, Europe, certainly. The United States doesn't have comprehensive privacy legislation by any means. But through the Federal Trade Commission, there is some element of regulation of privacy. And obviously, we've seen that with the their latest investigation of Facebook. Canada has a lot of catching up to do in this regard, both uh, at a federal and provincial level. There's a lot happening in the Canadian privacy world. Daniel Tarian, the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, is in the courts battling Google over a right to de-index. He's calling for order-making power after Facebook declined to abide by his recommendations. And he's embarked on a dramatic reinterpretation of the law, premised on incorporating new consent requirements into cross-border data transfers. Underlying it all is a Privacy Commissioner of Canada who is seemingly frustrated with the law he's been given to enforce. After years of calling for change, he's taking matters into his own hands, with what feels like statutory amendments without actual amendments. Here to provide an update on the recent developments and their implications is David Fraser, one of Canada's leading privacy experts, a partner at the law firm McInnes Cooper, and an active blogger at privacylawyer.ca. David, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. That's my pleasure. Thank you. So there is, as I guess is always the case, a lot happening in the Canadian privacy world. But it certainly feels like underlying quite a bit of it is a privacy commissioner of Canada who's pretty frustrated with the law that he's been given to enforce. And after years of calling for reform with limited success, there's the sense that he's taking matters into his own hands, almost by reinterpreting some of the law without actual statutory amendments. There's There's a number of examples, but the one that is certainly caught a lot of people's attention within the privacy world uh, has to do with cross-border data transfers. So why don't we start there? Uh, Perhaps you can explain what a a cross-border data transfer is and and why these issues really matter. Sure. Yeah, certainly they they happen quite often. That's just the, the reality of the way that the world works right now, particularly where it's so mediated by technology. Uh, probably the the one that people are most familiar with is you're a Canadian and you're using a U.S. service provider. It could be Facebook, it could be Google, or it could be Amazon or whoever. And the data associated with whatever that activity is is going to be going to the U.S. to be processed or it ends up stored in a U.S. data center. Um, and there's also many examples where Canadian companies take advantage of cloud technology or efficiencies of scale uh, where data is stored elsewhere. And then there's also the much more traditional notion of, let's say you're Air Canada and you're flying a passenger to Paris, you're obviously going to have to move that passenger's information to Paris if they want to check in at the airport to come back. And so this sort of thing has happened for a very long time and happens uh, quite regularly. And so it's not an unusual occurrence. Um, and it's just, uh, but it's certainly it's increasing, particularly as so much of the data processing and data storage capacity in the world uh, is outside of Canada. Okay, so we're talking. It, it sounds like even just from that brief description, it, 
this is touching on on their on everybody's lives today, um, from the kind of communication services they use to their banking, to travel, to just such a wide range of activities, sometimes for the purposes, as you suggest, to store the data or to process it sometimes because the transactions or activities themselves are cross-border in nature. So I suppose the starting point from a, a legal perspective is how has Canadian privacy law traditionally treated these issues. What exactly does accountability mean for my business? Accountability means that you need to make sure someone in your organization is responsible for protecting the personal information you collect and that you give that person the tools and support to do it right. Since PIPEDA was kind of first came into effect in, in 2001, it hasn't made any explicit distinction between activities that are taking place in Canada and activities that are taking place elsewhere. And I guess one can assume that that was probably an explicit choice because at the time that PIPEDA was being drafted, they already had the example of the European uh, Data Protection Directive, uh, which preceded the GDPR, uh, which did regulate cross-border data transfers. That did require if you were a, a data controller in the European Union and you wanted to transfer data outside of the European Union for somebody else to process on your behalf or if you were doing it on your own, uh, it had to go to a jurisdiction that had adequate privacy protection or there were other mechanisms that they could do that. So there's an explicit regulatory scheme in Europe related to cross-border data transfers. And the drafters of PIPEDA, I assume, expressly decided not to do that, but focused on the first principle of the Canadian Standards Association model code for the protection of personal information, which is entitled accountability, which requires any organization that is kind of the primary custodian of that information. Most often, the organization that collected it in the first place from the consumer, from the employee, if they're going to transfer information to anybody else to process, regardless of where that takes place, they have to make sure that their service provider implements adequate protections for that information, essentially requiring them to treat it uh, as though they would treat it themselves, subject to, to our laws. And I've often taken a look at that and, and seen it as when it comes to a cross-border transfer, you need to make sure that your contract that you have with your service provider is going to be enforceable, which requires taking a look at the legal system and rule of law in that other jurisdiction and, 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 a, and a risk analysis related to that. And I think that's, the, that's the, the general consensus among practitioners of privacy law since 2001. Then we had guidance from Jennifer Stoddart, the privacy commissioner at the time in 2009, related to cross-border data transfers, which essentially uh, made that the policy of the, the Privacy Commission of Canada and did bring to the fore uh, a notion that, in their view, that consumers should be given notice of this fact. And, and usually that would be done in their privacy policy. So if you wanted to know where the your service provider or where the company was going to be processing information, you'd be able to find it in, in that privacy policy as part of the openness principles. They have to the kind of working together of the accountability principle and the openness principle that uh, that kind of clears the way towards doing that. There's a lot there, and I, I just want to, in a sense, back up a little bit and unpack some of those pieces. And so, so what I'm hearing you saying is that back when the private sector privacy law, PIPEDA, as you said, here in Canada was being drafted, there were a number of different policy options presumably available to Canada. They could have adopted the European-style approach that, as you mentioned, essentially establishes some limitations on transfers across borders to ensure that it goes to jurisdictions that have laws that are viewed 
as adequate. GDPR stands for the General Data Protection Regulation. If it sounds complicated, well, it is. It's a set of sweeping data privacy rules going into effect across Europe, and it applies to any company in the world with customers in the EU. We've got a number of options for the future. For the moment, we meet that adequacy standard, and that presumably could have been a model that we might have adopted. But as you suggest, that's not the one we adopted. We instead use this accountability principle. And as you mentioned, it, it, it effectively requires that an organization collecting the data is accountable for it, no, no matter where it goes. So I, I, I trust that that means that once your bank or your airline or your social media platform, whoever has collected that personal information, as long as they have appropriate consent, it's up to them to decide where it gets stored, where it gets processed. The Can Canadian law doesn't really preclude moving it around to different jurisdictions around the world. That's right. And, and the, the organization that collected it in the first place, which would be subject to Canadian privacy laws, no doubt, is the one that's on the hook if anything happens to it, even if it's the, the subcontractor's fault, for example. And so I think that the incentives are built in there that to, to make sure that those protections are, are appropriate in place, appropriately in place, uh, and would be primarily policed by the organization that collected the information in the first place. Okay, right. So they're on the hook for this. Is it? Do they primarily achieve that today by way of contract, which you mentioned? That's part of what you do. Is there an expectation, though, that they go beyond that? I mean. Many listeners will be familiar with all kinds of contracts that nobody really takes the time to read, and there's always questions about enforceability, is simply papering this deal to say, I'm requiring you, service provider in another country, to, to meet certain standards good enough? Or do Canadian privacy laws, or at least the Privacy Commissioner's Office, under some of the guidance that you referenced, expect something more? Well, I would think it would be circumstance-specific. But certainly you could not just paper something and hand it over to a service provider who you know is not going to live up to those live up to those obligations. And certainly it's it would be risky to do that because the the first organization continues to be accountable for what happens to it. So if their service provider mistreats the information, misuses it, or even uses it for their own purposes, because that takes it from being a transfer to an actual disclosure. Um, then they're going to be on the hook for that. But we don't have – our principles-based legislation doesn't uh, put in place, for example, specific auditing requirements. But that certainly has been a trend. And one thing that's, that's been interesting, because GDPR and actually the Data Protection Directive before it did require these sorts of contracts to be in place between what are called in Europe controllers and processors, um, there has become a real consensus built up in terms of what these agreements should look like and what the auditing mechanism should be uh, should be within them. But certainly it, it's one of the, the things about, again, principles-based legislation is the sensitivity of the information is probably going to be taken into account, and the greater the risk related to the processing, the greater diligence I think one would have to do in order to make sure that the service provider is capable of performing these uh, and to make sure that they are, in fact, doing these things. Okay, so... It there's a there's a range of ways in which you would meet those your responsibilities, and as you suggest, it's it's pretty context specific. Now that's been the approach in Canada for a long time, and there's been guidance in place for for about a decade now. But the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, Daniel Terrian, surprised many just a few weeks ago by proposing a significant change. Perhaps you can describe what the commissioner's office now has in mind. Yeah, and, and, and I wouldn't characterize it as kind of proposing a significant change. You know, I guess he announced a significant change. 
with respect to his own interpretation of, of the statute. So we've had this consensus uh, since 2001, and so for, for more than 15 years, on how cross-border transfers need to be managed. And then certainly we had some formalization of that with uh, Jennifer Stoddart's uh, uh, guidance in 2009. And so what the current commissioner has proposed is that consent will be required for all transfers of personal information. Um, and his guidance focused on cross-border data flows. But I think one of the significant issues that a whole lot of people noticed almost immediately is that because our statute doesn't deal with export of information from Canada at all, it's not even mentioned, if you require consent for a transfer outside of Canada, you have to require consent for a transfer within Canada. And, and his logic, which I don't agree with, is that a transfer, even though transfers are called transfers compared to disclosures, which in the statute are called disclosures, uh, his view is that a transfer is a disclosure, and a disclosure requires consent, uh, and therefore can, you have to get consent for any transfer of information. So he's focused on cross-border, but there's going to be kind of collateral uh, effects on any sort of movement of information from one company to another, from one company to a service provider, uh, that I think uh, is ultimately going to be very disruptive. And it's been interesting because I've spoken to a large number of people who practice in this area, uh, many of whom think that, that ultimately it, it's not rooted in the statute um, and ultimately will uh, be probably more disruptive. What, in my personal view, what should have happened, and certainly if he wants to rethink these things, absolutely, that's, I think, law reform is part of his job. And he should have had a consultation on the topic with a proposal that would then be taken to Parliament and taken to the government to say, look, that uh, the cross-border data transfers are now a concern of ours. Uh, and for some reason, the, the, the concern has become more acute since 2001. And this is the way we need to rethink it, rather than unilaterally uh, abandoning uh, what had been the consensus of the interpretation of his statute for, for quite a long time, uh, and which will really kind of throw a monkey wrench into a whole bunch of things. So one example is you cannot clear a credit card transaction in Canada entirely in Canada. You use your Visa or your MasterCard or your American Express. That is actually, that has to be cleared in, in the United States. That's just the way that the system works. So how are you going to interpose consent into that system? And it's one thing if you talk about it on a go-forward basis for any kind of new collections use or disclosure. Uh, but most people have credit cards in their pockets that they've had for a dozen years. Is it going to be incumbent upon the banks or Visa uh, to go back to all of those consumers and say, hey, look, we need your consent. Oh, and here's another kind of, I think, defect with the logic, is that if you don't consent, we're going to take away your credit card, which turns consent in, the, in that context into a bit of an illusion. Sure, no, it doesn't sound like that's real consent if the option is you have the credit card or, or you just don't. It's that's right, yeah. So it's a take, take it or leave it sort of, uh, sort of scenario, which when we have more recent amendments to PIPEDA that talk about kind of raising the level of, of consent, uh, the threshold for consent and, and what's required, it really doesn't make sense to have like two steps forward on the transfer issue and one step backward on consent. Right. And that sounds like, you know, if we unpack what you've just said, it it sounds like we're talking about a whole series of concerns. There's certainly the concern about the impact that it, that it would have on certainly current practices, 
the impact that this would have on many of the much of the data that's already been collected or the the relationships that exist between various organizations and their customers. There's the concern that this isn't cross-border at all, that this is just data transfers full stop, which is just such a common activity within current modern commercial activities that's going to have a profound impact there. And then I suppose there's finally this concern that we've got a privacy commissioner that it appears is reinterpreting long-standing approaches and doing so rather than going through a consultative process that would ultimately lead to actual legislative reform is in effect simply saying, well, this has been the law all along. I'm just changing how I'm interpreting that law. Yeah, and I think that that comes to the bigger picture issue, which is that I think that we have a commissioner who wants significant changes to our statute, much more dramatic changes than any of his predecessors did. And in the absence of parliaments affecting those changes, he is looking at the statute and seeing what he can do himself to give effect to those changes. Uh, and uh, I have concerns about that from just a rule of law perspective. The kind of parliament has handed him a statute and, and said, this is, this is a framework within which you operate. Um, so there's, there's four corners to that statute, and, and he needs to remain within it. And so kind of creative reinterpretations that only get him partway where he wants to go are, are problematic. So just on, again, on the, on the cross-border part of it, I have clients who are, for example, American companies that operate in Canada that have, in fact, stored data in Canada, but uh, let's say they consolidate their back office stuff and they want to move all their Canadian data to a data center in the United States or to offices in the United States. They can do that without, they're unaffected by this because it's not a transfer from one company to another. It's the U.S. company operating in Canada, moving it to the U.S. And surely if the mischief to be addressed is the cross-border movement of information, um, that should be captured. But it's not because it doesn't get, it's hooked into the the transfer provisions within uh, Principle 1 and the statute. That's an interesting illustration of, of how something designed to deal even with cross-border data transfers may not in some circumstances. What does it say about the accountability principle if, when you've got the commissioner seemingly tossing it away or acknowledging that it, it is not as effective as has previously been suggested if the commissioner's, uh, in a sense, saying we relied previously on the accountability principle for data to be transferred as necessary, and now we're going to escalate some of the requirements there with new consent requirements. That seems to suggest that he doesn't have confidence that the accountability principle provides the level of protection that for many, many years the office has said it does. Yeah, and I think it's not throwing out the accountability principle. I think it's, it's uh, I guess, just reading between the lines in terms of I haven't had a conversation with him about it in, in, in any detail, but... Uh, supplementing it by the consent principle. Um, and, and I think there, there's other issues with it related to, so for example, our system in Canada under PIPEDA requires consent for the purposes. So you give notice of the purposes of the collection user disclosure under principle two, and then you get consent for those purposes. And we actually have a recent decision, I think of the Federal Court of Appeal, that said it's all about the purposes. It's not about how it's processed or where it's processed. We have the Toronto Real Estate Board decision, where uh, one of the issues was whether or not real estate brokers had gotten an adequate consent uh, to go from kind of limited access to 
information about real estate transactions in the back office to allowing that information to be made available online. And the Federal Court of Appeals said, look, they got consent for the purposes in the first place. The purposes haven't changed. The means by which people are getting access to that information or the means by which it's being disseminated is the only thing that's changed. And so I think that there's a disconnect. So if you if you wanted to do regulating cross-border transfers, you should do it properly, and it should be done from the ground up, rather than taking a bunch of square pegs and trying to fit them into a bunch of round holes. And so the commissioner's consultation on this, which I'm not sure how much of a consultation it is, because he said, this is our policy, we'd like your input on it, and please let us know by the 4th of June how much it's going to inform that, um, that, uh, that it really should have been a, a more holistic approach to say, look, do we have an issue with cross-border transfers? Is that, in fact, a problem? Kind of the Patriot Act boogeyman that we saw in the early 2000s is no longer the big boogeyman, at least some people have gotten their heads around it. Uh, so what is the issue, and what would be the appropriate solution, rather than saying unilaterally, I see an issue with this, and I'm going to try to address it within anything that I can justify in my statute, and it just doesn't fit. Um, and, and ultimately, I think it's up to Parliament to decide whether or not that's that's appropriate. And, and in fact, this goes further than the GDPR does when it comes to cross-border data transfers. Because if you're in Europe, you can move data to Canada without consent because Canada has adequacy. There's no adequacy mechanism in PIPEDA that, uh, that he could lean back on. Um, and that's that's just the, the nature of the statute. Right, so it's much more broad. It's more broad-based even in Europe in that respect, which is interesting. If if the boogeyman is kind of law enforcement access to information by U.S. authorities, which has always been the the kind of the Patriot Act boogeyman for many of these concerns about cross-border data transfers, particularly coming out of British Columbia and Nova Scotia statutes, um, would he really and and can he really interpret the legislation to limit or restrict transfers to the United States, our, our most significant trading power, our trading partner? Um, again, this this suggests to me we really need to take a step backwards and look at it in in the broader context and and see kind of what is the mischief we're trying to address, and then how do we manage that? You mentioned that the 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 privacy commissioner seems truly constrained by the law and is now looking for ways to almost bust out or reinterpret. Cross-border data transfers is obviously the most recent and most obvious example of that. But uh, are there others? And in particular, I'm thinking now around the so-called right to be forgotten, or uh, the commissioner would call it the right to de-index. Canadians could soon have the right to be forgotten. It's a matter being considered by the Federal Court of Canada this year at the request of the Privacy Commissioner. The right to be forgotten would allow people to request search engines remove old or potentially embarrassing links about them. So this is an example. Uh, and, and so the, the Commissioner, when, that, when Commissioner Terrier started, came into office, he did a, a I guess, a tour around and was looking to prioritize kind of the, the, the strategic priorities for, for his office. Uh, and one of the priorities that identified was online reputation and did a significant consultation about it. He'd be, uh, it appeared to be kind of open-minded and saying, hey, look, does, does PIPEDA, does our federal privacy statute uh, include or does it adequately deal with online reputation and does it include a right to be forgotten? And if it does, what would that, what would that look like? Um, and so if I recall correctly, about 30 submissions were provided, um, 30 substantive submissions were provided as part of that uh, consultation. 
most of the kind of expert consultations uh, I, or, or submissions, I did one, and uh, many of the people that we know did uh, did submissions, suggested to him that PIPEDA currently, as it's drafted, does not include a right to be forgotten. And many people also cautioned that there would be serious charter issues with freedom of expression. So the European Union, under GDPR and actually under the Data Protection Directive before it, uh, has been interpreted by the top court in Europe to include a right to de-indexing. And but a significant part of that background is that that decision was based not just on the privacy law, but also on European constitutional documents, which include a constitutionally entrenched right to privacy that is alongside a constitutionally entrenched right to freedom of expression. And we only have in our charter a constitutionally entrenched freedom of expression. And so there would likely be significant issues. And any law that says that thou shalt not provide particular search results uh, is going to affect freedom of expression uh, and would have to be justified under Section 1 as a reasonable limitation provided, provided by law. Um, and so many people kind of cautioned that, that you know, this is not something that, that could just be read into PIPEDA. Uh, and even if you amended PIPEDA to include such a right, you'd have to be very careful about the constitutional issues. Now, at the end of that process, he produced a, a, a document um, which did contemplate in his interpretation of the statute that there is a right to, to de-indexing in the statute. Um, and there have been a number of complaints sent to his office for, from individuals, many of whom are really quite sympathetic, looking to have uh, search results removed uh, from principally from Google is the largest search engine operator in Canada, but from others, as I understand it, um, where the content lawfully exists on a website, on a media site or on a blog or, or someplace else like that, and there's no way to have it taken down because it's not defamatory, for example, uh, but looking to have it removed from search results if you search for that person's name. So similar to uh, the right as it has been implemented in, in Europe, which has resulted in in a reference to the Federal Court of Canada by the by the Privacy Commissioner uh, to determine some of the questions that this raises, but certainly not all of them. So the issue now before the courts, do you know where that stands at the moment? I, I do. So kind of full disclosure, I'm, I'm co-counsel for Google on that, on that particular matter. Um, and so the uh, three questions were put to the, or, or three issues were put to the Privacy Commissioner with respect to kind of the, the issue in, in, in one particular complaint. So PIPEDA applies to the collection, use, and disclosure of commercial act, uh, personal information in the course of commercial activity. Uh, and the position was put forward that operating a search engine connecting news media to news readers is not inherently a commercial activity, and therefore PIPEDA doesn't apply to that search transaction. Uh, the second issue put forward to the commissioner was that there's a journalism exception in PIPEDA that says PIPEDA does not apply to where the collection use or disclosure of personal information is for journalistic purposes and for no other purpose. And so it was put to the commissioner that, in fact, connecting traditional news media outlets with readers is a journalistic function, and therefore PIPEDA doesn't apply. And the third issue was that at the end of the day, any requirement under Canadian law by a Canadian regulator to remove links to content that legally exists on the Internet infringes the charter and cannot be saved by Section 1, uh, and therefore the whole thing was unconstitutional. And, and we had proposed to the Privacy Commissioner a um, kind of a collaborative judicial review, because during, during the consultation, pretty well everybody had an opportunity to have their say, but ultimately it was going to be decided by a judge. 
uh, as happened in Europe. And so we propose that the three questions be put to the court uh, in a judicial review. Uh, and instead, the commissioner initiated what's called a reference under the Federal Courts Act, where only the first two questions were put to the court. The charter issue is not uh, expressly not before the court, and they've kind of really gone out of their way to try to prevent the charter question from being heard by the court at this stage. Yes. And so, so currently where it stands is that a number of media parties uh, applied to intervene, including some of the publishers of the content at issue in this particular case, um, and they were denied, and it was said that it was premature, uh, and an application was made to the motions to the case management judge and ultimately to a prosonitary to, to clarify that there are constitutional issues that are inherent in the first two questions. Um, and uh, that was, we got a decision a couple weeks ago where the prosonitary said that that's ultimately going to be an issue for the trial judge uh, or for the ultimate judge to, to determine, and it was kind of premature uh, to have fully resolve that question now. So it's in, in its process. I would expect that we would probably see a hearing on the merits uh, in the fall, um, and uh, hopefully a decision shortly after that. Okay, interesting. The sort of case that people are certainly going to keep an eye on, and one suspects may end up in before multiple courts with many interveners along the way, given the kinds of issues that you just yep. talked about. Uh, we, we'd be remiss before, before we close if we didn't touch on the recent Facebook investigation and the results that, that came out both from the federal commissioner and the B.C. commissioner. Most notably, in the aspect that I think got the most amount of attention, was Facebook simply saying, well, those might be the recommendations that you have, but at this stage we're not prepared to follow them. Canada's privacy commissioner is blasting Facebook in a new report. He says the social media giant broke this country's privacy laws. And when he told Facebook to clean up its act, it said no. The commissioner says that's unacceptable. They disagree with our legal conclusions. I don't think it should be on uh, in 2019 in terms of privacy legislation that a company, a private company with its interests, can say to a regulator, thank you very much for your conclusions on matters of law, but we actually disagree and we will actually uh, continue as we were. It is completely unacceptable. I think I caught a lot of people by surprise, this notion that somehow privacy law compliance might be voluntary or that there might actually be some out there that would say, well, we don't have to follow what the commissioner uh, says. Can you talk a bit about your, your thoughts on that decision and, and the issues around enforcement, which, of course, go to the heart of some of the things that the Privacy Commissioner has been talking about as a shortcoming within the law? Sure, absolutely. And, and I, I don't think there's, there's any doubt that the Commissioner is finding himself frustrated um, that his interpretations of the statute are not, uh, not necessarily kind of prevailing, that he doesn't have the ability to order people to comply with, with his view. So I'm, I'm at, at a conference right now, and there was a, a panel yesterday that included uh, Michael McAvoy, the Information Privacy Commissioner of British Columbia, and Commissioner Terrien, talking about the, the Cambridge Analytica and Facebook uh, investigation. And one of the things that was said by, the, by Commissioner Terrien was that, that he's frustrated that, uh, that his view, his interpretation of the statute doesn't ultimately prevail, and that's one of the reasons why he needs order-making powers. And I, I think it's worth kind of breaking that down a little bit and, and looking a little bit at what came up in that particular investigation and, uh, and the, the positions that Facebook put forward, which included that, so in, in the whole kind of Cambridge Analytica thing, that individuals used an app that existed on the platform 
of the Facebook platform that resulted in their information being transferred to the, the app owner, for want of a better term. Uh, and then that app owner, contrary to the promises that they'd made to the users, transferred it elsewhere, and it was, and it was misused in connection with, the, with political activities and, and things like that. And Facebook put forward the position, as I understand it, that, in fact, that Facebook isn't primarily accountable for what happens by those app developers, that an individual made a choice to use that particular app. And instead of it being, we can actually kind of go full circle a little bit, that wasn't a transfer of information. That was disclosure of information to a third party that was triggered by the user and therefore the accountability principle is not is not in play in the way that the, the commissioner suggested. So it, ultimately, it rested on a diff, completely different view of legally what was going on in that particular scenario. And I think they have an arguable position to, to put forward. And so they simply did not agree with the legal interpretation of the statute. And ultimately, it goes to the courts in order to be resolved. And that's how PIPEDA was, was implemented. That's how it was drafted in the late 1990s. It came into effect in 2001. Um, and we've often heard from the commissioner, uh, particularly uh, Commissioner Tevier, that he needs order-making powers because he, he doesn't have the, the ability to require companies to, uh, to do A, B, C, or D, or is looking for to impose penalties on them. And in fact, our statute was designed so that the uh, the parties can take it to the court, and ultimately, it's going to be for the for the court to decide. So certainly, so things are unfolding, I guess, in a way as they should, as the statute was drafted. Uh, but I can see his concern about that. Now, I, I also have concerns with just giving the commissioner order making powers, uh, because you would have to significantly rejig his office in order to make sure that you had procedural fairness. And so we have the example of the Canada Human Rights Commission and Tribunal and the Competition Commissioner and the Competition Tribunal in order to make sure that the advocate is not also the investigator, the judge, jury, and ultimate executioner. And, and I would point to the CRTC enforcement folks under CASEL or anti-spam law as being an example of what actually can go wrong when you kind of include too much of that within, within one body. And so certainly I, I expect we are going to have, and, and kind of the rumors are that we're going to probably hear an announcement from the government uh, related to uh, perhaps a new PIPEDA review. And so if you're looking at, at kind of order-making powers, we need to be very careful to make sure that all of those things are, are taken into account. One of the things that was quite interesting on this panel that I referred to was also the Assistant Information Commissioner from, from the United Kingdom talking about all the different uh, kind of, I guess, firewalls between different parts of that office because they also, they have investigative, they actually have prosecutorial functions as well. So they can issue kind of criminal charges under, under UK law, but they have to bend over backwards and, and be very diligent to make sure that those different functions are insulated from the other in order to guarantee procedural fairness. David, thanks so much yeah. for joining me on the podcast. No, it's a pleasure. Anytime. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. That's L-A-W-B-Y-T-E-S at P-O-Box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Law Bites Pod or Michael Geist at M Geist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca 
or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.